Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 1st, 2017. This is episode 2123 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week. We don't have the Monster Trucks, but we got the Monster Show. The expert council Q&A show, including some council members that have been hiding on the Pikers list for a while, uh, dusting it off and getting back with us. We've got seven plus one from me today. Here's what we'll be talking about. The impact of SEC regulations on the cryptocurrency space from Brandon Todd. Dealing with acid reflux from Doc Bones. Composting poultry litter, deep litter, that type of litter anyway, uh, with Jeff Lawton, cold brew coffee, and more on acid reflux as it relates to coffee from the awesome Nicole Awesome Sauce. Homeschooling and entrepreneurship conflict challenges, Mike and Sue Laprise. That one's a little, it's more, that's why I put it in the bullet points. Somebody that wants to full-time farm and wants to homeschool and sees that it could be a conflict, Mike and Sue have some stuff on that. Um, getting started with Homestead Sheep from Darby Simpson. Buying a VW TDI and considerations when doing so. Specifically in cold climates, Charles Sandville. And how and which herbs improve your garden? From me, myself, and I, that would be Jack. And uh, we'll get to all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. The year is 76, and we have the Romanization of Wales. Contributed by David Verne. The Roman governor of Britain, Sextus Fortinius, has been on campaign subduing Silurs. The Silurs are a Welsh tribe that have remained independent from Roman rule through an effective guerrilla campaign. Fortunius has been successful in his campaigns, though it is unknown if he did it militarily or diplomatically. The town of Venta Silurium is built to serve as an administrative center for the surrounding regions. The Silurs were given some independence and were responsible for their own administration. My take by David Verne. One of the Romans' greatest strength was their ability to integrate and rule a vast collection of different cultures. Most of their gods were borrowed from conquered peoples, and they often saw foreign gods as different versions of their own. Whenever the Romans found a beneficial idea or belief, they would incorporate it into their own culture. Roman citizenship gave the right to vote and the right to appeal legal decisions, immunity from being tortured, tax exemptions, and many other benefits. In the early Republic, conquered Italian cities revolted and fought for the right to become citizens. The idea of citizenship as something that had to be earned was a powerful tool. A conquered town became more Romanized. They could be granted constitution and citizenship. Non-citizens who lived in the empire could enlist in the auxiliaries, and after a 25-year service period, they and their heirs would be given citizenship. By making everyone feel like they had a stake in the system, integration of conquered peoples happened much faster and smoother than it had in earlier empires. Yeah, I'm not like touting empire here, but it is almost like if you come in and take over a nation and let them have some autonomy and give them a stake in the whole, that they're more likely to uh, accept being assimilated than if you beat the shit out of them, stab them, burn their shit down all the time, and tell them to just shut up and do what you want. It is it is almost like people work that way. I, I kind of see this in the way that America became such a powerful nation, though. 
And I don't mean through our empire building, which unfortunately we've done way too much of. I'm talking about right here domestically at home. This is kind of the reverse model of what we did for the majority of our existence that we've kind of gotten away from in the last 25, 30 years. When you hear people bitching about the immigration debate and they say this is a country built on immigrants, they're right, but they're, they're missing out on the reality. The, the way we're handling immigration today is people are coming in in like a vulcanization. So what vulcanization means, back in the, in the 70s and 80s, there was a company uh, that I was aware of as a kid that most kids wouldn't be aware of. It was called Robert's Recaps. And the reason I was aware of this is because my dad was in the tire business. And what Robert's Recaps did was they would take these old tires, and then you would you basically weld a piece of rubber to replace the tread. If you ever notice a tire, the top wears out. The sides don't wear out unless something really bad. So as long as the sides were stable, they would just take a, basically a belt, a big rubber belt with tread pattern on it, and just weld and like grind the tire flat and weld it on there. There's a problem with that. They used to blow off all the time, and, and you don't see recaps anymore, right? There's a, there's a term called retread, and it's, it got lumped in with recaps. Retreading was when you took a tire that had really – they used to – see, my dad used to do this. Tires used to be made a lot thicker. And when your thread got down, there was a thing called a grooving iron, and you could groove out that groove and regroove the tire. You could do that about one time, and it was completely safe and needed all. But the, but the recap versus the retread, it never worked because you had to, to make the rubber a solid single piece for it to hold together under pressure. Well, that's kind of how it used to be in America. It was the melting pot. So when you came in, you got melted in, you became part of the whole. And what we've moved now is this vulcanization thing where we're, we talk about it like diversity for the sake of diversity is worth having. Well, the idea of diversity is great, but diversity of what? See, the, the thing that keeps a, a nation strong is when you bring people into it, there are certain core beliefs that they have to share to be part of it. And we've lost that, where it's okay for anybody to believe anything they want except the core beliefs. That's, that's what the left has done. And, of course, that has caused the right to polarize to a ridiculous position. It, it's almost like it would be better off if they're what a state, but just me talking there. Anyway, uh, with that, let's uh, go ahead and get into today's show. And, of course, this is a expert counsel show. If you want to get a question in for an expert counsel member, just send an email to me with TSPC expert in the subject line. Of course, my email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. When you send me that email, ask your question, just like it's for me. You know, up front, bottom line up front, ask your question or make your point in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times and provide details. And tell me in that first couple sentences, who the question is for. Don't tell me to pick the council member I think is best. You tell, you tell me. Now, if you think it's between two, you can tell me, well, either this person or that person. What if you're not sure about all the members of our expert council? Well, go to the survivalpodcast.com, and right up at the top of the site, you'll see a bunch of tabs. And one of the very first ones after home is about. And if you hover on about, you can scroll down, and you can see meet the expert council. You can go through that whole list and see all of the people that are there and the things that they can help you with. And I definitely need some questions uh, for next week. Right now I'm short on next week's show. Uh, I'll tell you a, a guy that we could really use some questions for, and we're very lucky to have him, is uh, our law enforcement uh, expert, Dan Oman, 
Uh, Dan is a retired law enforcement officer. Now he's farming. But he can ask your questions about interactions with police, uh, things that are going on in the news that involve law enforcement, things like that. We're very lucky to have Dan, and he's done a great job with the questions I've had. I just haven't had very many for him. Um, we certainly could use more questions for everybody, but I can definitely use them for Ben Falk. I have none right now for Gary Collins on the primal power method, paleo primal stuff. I have nothing for Keith Snow right now. I have. Uh, I don't think I have any for Darby Simpson, though I have two already. One's going to be today, and I have one that's already recorded. Stephen Harris is actually a lot on questions. I had one for Michael Jordan on bees for a while. Nick Ferguson, I think, has everything back to me, and we've used him up, so I got nothing for Nick. I got one in the bank for John Pugliano, but I could certainly use some more. Uh, Jeff Lawton, I think, has gotten everything back to me. Hadn't had a question for Erica Strauss in a long time. So uh, Erica Strauss uh, on you know small-scale urban homesteading, cooking, all the great stuff she does. Tim Glantz, ain't had a question for Tim Glantz in a while either. So uh, Mike Sulapreze, I've got him on the air today, but I have nothing for him. So uh, they can answer your questions about homeschooling and stuff like that. So guys, i got room. So let's get those questions in so I can get them off these council members and we can make these awesome shows for you because these shows don't work without you. That's, that's the way they are. Anyway, the first question I have today is the impact of SEC regulations on the cryptocurrency space, specifically with ICOs, for Brandon Todd. Brandon, take it away. Hey, everyone. It's Brandon here from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer another question for the expert council. This question is from Nick in Washington, where Nick asks, Why is the U.S. imposing rules and regulations on exchanges preventing U.S. citizens from participating in the exchanges, and what can we do about it? A little background, I heard about the SEC regulations that uh, came out this last summer referring to participating in ICOs. However, as someone who does not participate in them, I did not think it would affect me at all that much. Uh, however, I do trade in a few select currencies such as Ethereum. Recently, Iconami went live. I have been following their progress for some time now and was excited until I discovered that they do not allow U.S. citizens from creating an account. With other, uh, with other exchanges, it is simple enough to use a VPN to get around uh, the U.S. filter to create an account and keeping your identity verification to a Tier 1 or no verification with small limits. I don't typically have large sums anyway. Um, however, with Iconami, you apparently have to verify your identity to some degree before the account uh, creation. This makes Iconami not accessible even with a VPN. Uh, right. So, all right. Thank you, Nick from Washington. Okay. So great question. You basically have three questions here. So let me list those real quick. First, we have, why are these exchanges and programs restricting access to U.S. citizens? Next, we have, what can we do about it? And finally, we have, what does this mean for the future of crypto in the U.S.? So to speak to that first question of why U.S. customers are being excluded from some of these new ICO slash crypto platforms, the United States is quite strict when it comes to investment regulations. Uh, only accredited investors can partake in private uh, placements of securities. Now, I would imagine I would I would imagine what is considered a currency versus a commodity versus a security in this space will ultimately be determined by the SEC as we go forward in this new. We'll call it crypto universe. I do not. Uh, I do know that the SEC did rule on whether or not 
the now infamous DAO or DAO was a security, and they indeed did label it as label it as one. So this ruling did show everyone in the space that the SEC is watching and moving to eventually rule on these things. I think most of these groups issuing these new ICOs are just, you know, they're just playing it safe, and ex- they're excluding all the non-accredited U.S. Uh, citizens from many of these products. Okay, so your next question, uh, what can we do about it? Well, you know, I do see you live in Washington State, which is, you know, in my opinion, one of the least free when it comes to cryptocurrencies uh, these days. I know it can be hard to relocate across country. I've done it a few different times. Um, I know it's hard with, with if you have uh, family, if you have kids, you got to deal with school if you have them in schools, if you're not homeschooling, you know. Uh, but if this category means a lot to you and your uh, your personal freedom, consider moving to a more crypto-friendly state like New Hampshire, Texas, or Nevada. Now, with respect to federal securities laws, like I mentioned earlier, moving to another state in the U.S. obviously won't matter, but it will afford you more options uh, with some of these exchanges and services. And yes, you are spot on with the fact that a VPN or Tor can get you a non-U.S.-based IP address, But any ICO that is going to legally exclude U.S. citizens will require submission of ID verification on top of that. I know this because I, too, have tried this. He, he, he. And and lastly, to your question of what does this mean for crypto in the U.S., basically it means U.S. citizens will be barred from investing in many of these ICOs. So some opportunities will be lost for some. But on the other hand, many of us won't lose our money, too. What I mean by that is... Uh, I do think that some of these uh, ICOs will be a long-term success, but also I do believe if uh, I do believe many, if not most, of them will not survive and will fail. I have said this before on a video I posted on my blog at CryptoSkim.com, where I mentioned that many of these ICO I call them rockets. Uh, kind of use that analogy. The rockets will explode on their launch pads, and many will not hit their targets. You know, the ones that do get you know take off. So the way that I see it is that it's still very new for this concept of ICOs and this first wave of ICO mania we still see playing out is what I like to think of ICOs 1.0. I think many of these will fail and the losses will be huge. I do think there is a bright future for the ICO model and ICOs in general, but I really think the space needs to grow up quite a bit and it's still just a baby, so to speak. This is just my opinion, but many others that have been around in a while in the crypto space agree with me on that. In the short term, U.S. investors will be forced into more of the traditional, we'll call them blue chip type, bigger crypto projects like uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dash, Zcash, stuff like that. This might not be so terrible of a thing while we sit back and watch the ICO landscape mature a bit. All right, hope th- hope this answers your questions, Nick. Uh, thanks again for sending it in. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to again mention, um, you know, if you want supporting material uh, for these questions, um, any sort of background information or links that I provide, you can go on over to CryptoSkim.com, click on a tab called TSP Questions, and just scroll down for the description and the episode number, and there you'll find um, all of the information that I provide uh, for this uh, for these responses. So this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com wishing you all a great day. So let me uh, add a little bit to that, probably about one or two minutes worth only is most necessary. On the ICOs, it's initial coin offerings, and it's it's basically the the cryptocurrency equivalent to what's called an initial public offering, 
But unlike a typical initial public offering or IPO, uh, these companies haven't gone through a huge multi-million dollar process to be able to do it, so you're, you're not allowed to invest in it. Now, here's the interesting thing. I know people are like, well, what, what exactly is the big deal about it? Okay, there is no other country in the world that I know of where you can't invest in an ICO. None. The United States has the most onerous and restrictive laws on investing and on what you do with your money of any country in the world infinity. And you can try to challenge me with that, but I will prove you wrong if you do. When it, now, I'm not saying they're the, most, they're the most oppressive when it comes to your ability to keep your money. But I'm saying if you want to take the money you have kept and do something with it, from a standpoint of making an investment, the most restrictive nation in the world on that. Or if you want your money to go somewhere else and not be here anymore, etc. The most restrictive nation in the world, infinity, is the United States of America. So obviously I'm opposed to this. However, I'm not that upset about it. And the reason is simple. These ICOs go to the mat at a very low price point. Usually sub $1 per coin or token or whatever the hell it is. And the only reason people really get a big twist about these ICOs is what they want to do is they want to get in there and buy a whole shitload of them. And they're hoping the ICO sells out. If the ICO sells out, at that point, generally these companies do not release any more tokens at all or for a very long time. And they, they say, you know, we will put X amount in reserve and they'll be for our shareholders to, you know, our, our founders or whatever. But they don't, they don't keep selling them. It's a big flood. Boom and done. For instance, when, um, Brave, the Brave browser people released the basic attention token, it sold out like six minutes. And it sold at a price of three and a half cents a token. They raised $35 million in six minutes. You could immediately buy those tokens for about 20 cents. Not immediately, but really, really quick. It was picked up on an exchange like Bittrex. You could buy them somewhere in the 20 cent range. And if you waited like I did, you were eventually able to buy them down at about 10 cents. And if you're, if you're looking to invest in something like this out of a speculation, that long term this project is valuable, okay, then that differential, that paying 10 cents instead of 4 cents, doesn't really affect much, does it? And most of the people upset about not being able to invest in these ICOs really probably wouldn't be unless they were told that they couldn't. And the problem with the ICOs, and I, I, do, I don't like the government doing this, but I do believe that it is probably anyway going to help people. Because what happens is people read a cool wide paper, they see a flashy website, they want to be part of it, it's going to change the world. The, the, the reality is there will be a handful of cryptos left in 10 years. A handful. Now that, that handful might be 50, but it ain't going to be the thousand that are out there right now for damn sure. Because every one of these coins is going to change the world and change this and change that and bullshit. In the end, unless you've got to ask yourself a question. What does this do that other cryptocurrencies can't do and will not be able to do? So even a lot of the things like anonymity with Monero and Zcash and Zencash, I'm all for it. Don't think Bitcoin can't do that at some point if it wants to. Okay. So like you have to like when you see when you look at these things, what are they doing? I like Dash because of their marketing, and I don't mean their marketing get you buy their coins. I mean their marketing of getting people to use it into the cannabis space. It's brilliant. 
It's brilliant because those people can't find a bank. Banks won't touch the cannabis industry. And they have lots of money. They need a banking process. That's an example. Uh, something you know that has very low fees and anonymity is great for people to be able to send money back to their home country. S uh, basic attention tokens. Can, if, if, if Brandon Ike skins the browser war again, like he's done before, and makes Brave not even the dominant, but a dominant browser, and builds an advertising network within the Brave platform, you will only be able to buy advertising using Brave tokens or basic attention tokens. And users will be paid in them for their attention. That's an ecosystem. Swarm City, they're going head-to-head -head up front. What they want to do is go to head-to-head -head with like the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. But they are creating a marketplace where anybody can create basically a store under a hashtag. But if you want to do business inside Swarm City, you have to have Swarm City tokens. That's an ecosystem. A lot of these other ones, even ones I like for now, for instance, Zcash, it's great that it's anonymous, but anybody can make one that's anonymous. What does it do that's better, that has a demand, that will enable, that will, will create a world in which it will actually get used? So we have short, mid-term speculation, long-term stores of value and long-term speculation, and ICOs, if you are asking questions like, how do I do this, What you're probably not ready to be investing in an ICO. Because the only reason people really invest in them heavily is so they can just make money fast. And you're just as likely to get your ass waxed trying to do that as you are to be successful with it. There's plenty of opportunities investing without even touching it. What sucks about it is there's a lot of companies that could put together a really great ICO and build organizations right here in America that won't do it because they can't take American money. Anyway, with that, I went way longer than I planned on, so let's take another one. This one is on dealing with deep litter and manure with ducks and chickens. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia in a... Um in a, a very wet start of summer, great year for tree planting here in Australia in the subtropics. Anyway, I have a question here from David Stroiber, and uh, David has three yards of uh, manure that he's taken out of a duck chicken coop, and um, it represents 10 months of deep litter. And the main question uh, David has is, um, uh, what what would I do with it? Would I till it in or make compost or any other option? Well, I'd definitely make compost because um, if it's deep litter and it's mixed with uh, carbon and that's partly broken down, it's kind of halfway composted there a bit already. But when you lock things up in compost, um, the nitrogen and the uh, leachable elements are bonded to the carbon And as the biodynamics people did the long-term experiments and all this stuff, they found that uh, your water-soluble synthetic chemical fertilizer doesn't last more than a year or 18 months before it's all leached away. Basic manures um, hang about for about four to five years if they're not consumed by plants, and then they leach away. Um, But uh, when you've made compost, it can last 17 to 20 years in the soil. And that's because it's locked into the carbon and it actually becomes a living inoculum. So I think the very best thing to do is to make compost 
and not dig the compost into the soil, put it in a, as a top layer and a mulch over the top of that then. Now, a mulch at different thicknesses. If you're in a broad bed area, then a, just a thin mulch over your compost. If you're in a home garden, then a deep mulch um, that is um, with pockets of compost. Um, the reason I, I emphasize don't bury it, I, I never bury any carbon material at all anymore because you actually, when you bury carbon, we've all realized and that includes nitrogen rich cover crop. When you bury it in the soil or dig it in, it's got to extract um, nitrogen from somewhere for it to break down. And that usually is from the soil itself. So you get what's called a nitrogen drawdown before then it's available. So you go backwards before you go forwards. And this is the problem with things like hugel culture in the hot climates, um, particularly the tropics where your growing season is the hot, wet time of year. And that's also the decomposition time of year. Where in the cold climates, the temperate climates, your decomposition is in the wet time of year, which is all there's not the growing time. So your your cold winter is when everything's dormant and also when things are decomposing. So you're not mixing uh, high carbon subsurface decomposition uh, with a large amount of wood under the soil. Where in the tropics, all that's got to draw down in summer when you're wanting to grow everything. Now, generally, you know, everything goes on the top, um, on the soil, and mulch goes afterwards, which is really going to turn into compost later. And that's like the layers of our natural ecosystems, our forests. I hope that helps you out. All right. Thank you. All right. Good stuff from Jeff Lott. Next, I have a question on acid reflex for old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question is from Karen, who writes, I'm reaching middle age and starting to feel what I suspect are symptoms of acid reflux. I prefer not to take drugs and would like suggestions for things to try at home. I've been into heavy coffee for several years and need to learn how to do better. Thanks. Karen, acid reflux disease is caused by acid traveling up the esophagus from the stomach. This is sometimes caused by relaxation at the stomach-esophagus border or by an outpouching of the area called a hiatal hernia. The primary symptom is heartburn but severe disease actually can cause even chest pain. It is usually relieved by an acids or by sleeping with the upper body raised or maybe both, and failure to treat severe acid reflux may lead to ulcers in some people. To make the diagnosis of acid reflux disease, the timing of the discomfort is very important. Acid reflux discomfort occurs soon after eating, but is sometimes seen several hours after a meal. It can be differentiated from other causes of chest pain in another important way. It gets better temporarily by drinking milk or taking antacids. As you can imagine, this wouldn't do much for chest pain caused by heart problems. Other causes include the overuse of ibuprofen or aspirin. These can be an irritant to the stomach in some people. Avoidance of these drugs can prevent ulcers and inflammatory pain. Smoking and alcohol abuse are also known causes, as is the eating of large meals just before going to bed. Certain lifestyle changes are also helpful for people with acid reflux. Eating smaller meals, say five a day as opposed to 
three big square meals, and avoiding acidic foods before bedtime may help prevent reflux. Give your stomach at least three hours to empty before you lie down. If you're a big coffee drinker, consider making just a cup or two at a time instead of the 12 cups you can make with the average drip coffee maker. You would think chewing gum would increase stomach acid, but interestingly enough, it's not the case. Chewing gum, sugar-free please, produces saliva. Saliva acts to buffer acid. Also, you swallow the saliva, which might force some of that acid further down the esophagus, the tube, to the stomach. You may also benefit from avoiding certain foods. These commonly include acidic fruit like oranges or other citrus, fatty foods, coffee, certain teas, tomatoes, onions, peppermint, and chocolate. Now, one thing about milk, although it may be helpful as a treatment, avoid regular milk and stick with low fat, as high levels of fat ingestion may actually increase stomach acid. Obese individuals seem to suffer more from this problem. Excess abdominal fat can press against the stomach, which forces acid up into the esophagus. Medications that commonly relieve acid reflux include calcium, magnesium, aluminum, and bismuth antacids such as Tums, Maalox, Mylanth, or Pepto-Bismol, as well as other medications such as ranitidine, otherwise known as Zantac, cimetidine, otherwise known as Tagamet, and omeprazole, otherwise known as Prilosec. These medications are available in non-prescription strength. They're easy to accumulate in quantity, especially for those people interested in preparedness and having a stockpile of these kinds of medications. Don't forget that there are many alternative remedies that are reported to be helpful to deal with acid reflux. They include organic apple cider vinegar. Mix one tablespoon in four ounces of water and drink before each meal. You could use aloe vera juice, mixing one ounce and two ounces of water before a meal. Baking soda is good. Mix one tablespoon in a glass of water and drink right away when you begin to feel the heartburn. Also, you can take glutamine. Glutamine is an amino acid that has an anti-inflammatory effect that also helps reduce acid reflux. It can be found in things like milk and eggs. Melatonin might be useful for some, but more study is needed on this one. I hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount off anything on the Doom and Bloom store. Lastly, experience the joy you get from making an old man, that's me, very happy, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at DR Bones Nurse Amy Channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Thanks again. And now demonstrating the uh, extreme power of synchronicity in this audience, I have a question for Nicole Sauce. It's actually two questions she took and kind of combined together. Um, one on cold brewing coffee, but the other one on guess what? Acid reflux in response to drinking coffee. So, uh, well, this wasn't planned. It just worked out this way. Again, you guys seem to, a lot of times move in lockstep through this audience. Anyway, Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from Holler Roast Coffee, taking two questions from listeners about one of my favorite topics in the whole world. That's right. These are two more coffee questions. The first one comes from Chris, who sent audio over, and I will play it for you now. Hi, this message is for Nicole Sauce. Uh, this is Chris from Ohio. Uh, question about coffee. Is there a coffee out there that would be easy on the stomach for people with reflux, reflux disease? The background is 
I've just been dealing with uh, reflux uh, for the last couple years, and one of the worst offenders of it for me is coffee, and I sure miss drinking it. And I just wondered if there was such a thing as a coffee that maybe is less acidic or not acidic at all. I don't know if uh, if there's something out there that uh, people like me that have uh, reflux and uh, still want to drink coffee. So thanks for your time. Love the show. Well, Chris, we all love the show. That's why we're here, right? And your question is a great one, and it, it it's one of those answers where the the it depends comes out of the bag. The big challenge with this question is that I don't know how badly you get acid reflux, nor what your core cause of it is. But I can tell you the easy and selfish answer first, just buy holler roast coffee. You all expected that, right? No, really. Okay, so one of the people in my household has really bad acid reflux problems, and so... Whenever I make a roast that's too light or I test a new bean that has higher acid, he immediately lets me know. We can't have beans in our mix that cause tummy aches. So when you choose our signature blend, roasted to dark or espresso, which is the espresso is listed as the Siegler roast on our website, you are making your best shot at having a coffee that won't make you miserable. However, this does beg the question, right? Like, why? And to put it in the perspective of food, coffee clocks in with a pH of about five, which is in fact less acid than tomato sauce. It, it you know, on on the basic scale, I think my tomato sauce usually comes in around four, which is you know lower pH, higher acid. So it it can have a higher or lower acid pH measure from there. Um, but your tongue is one of the best ways to figure out if the coffee is going to make you miserable later or not. What you want to do is look for flavor profiles that have descriptors like chocolate, caramel, and avoid the ones that, that say citrus, orange, lemon overtones. None of those are good because those are the higher acid descriptors. And of course, as, as we talked about before, it all starts with the bean. Some beans have higher acid. In fact, this is a sought-after flavor in the coffee world. And the thing that impacts this the most is the is the altitude at which the beans were grown. So the beans that are grown higher up on the mountain have higher acid. Isn't that interesting? So, so you want to choose things that are grown at a lower elevation because that will be less likely to hurt your tummy. And if you're looking at freshly roasted high-end coffees, they usually can tell you what the varietal is and where it's grown if you want to just drill down on the altitude. And then, of course, there's the roast. When you roast the bean a little longer, the oils come out, and in theory, so does some of the acid. And I can attest that if I dare to put a medium roast in our coffee machine at home, I hear about it from my favorite tummy tester, and so there must be something to this. Also, adding some milk might help smooth your experience. That's what I started doing as I got older and started getting sour stomachs in the morning. And adding additional acid when you're drinking coffee, I, I like to call this acid orange juice, is a bad idea. So if you're having coffee in the morning, don't have orange juice. And if you're having orange juice, don't have coffee because you're just piling acid on acid at that point or any other thing that you might be eating at that time. Like if you're going to do one, like choose your acid carefully. It took me years to learn not to do this, like put, you know, like have the glass of orange juice and the coffee in the morning and many, many hours of being very car sick. So also never, never, never take vitamins with your coffee. 
Uh, vitamin B in particular for me is a big no, no. I wait until lunch for that. I make sure it's not with the coffee. Otherwise, bleh. And finally, there is your brewing method. Espresso sits water on the beans for less time and therefore it, is, it extracts less acid when you make it. Uh, but there is a lower acid way of making coffee and that's cold brew, which brings me to question number two from Oxymoron over at the TSP Zello channel. Oxy heard me talk about how to make the perfect cup of coffee in episode 2094. And I only really mentioned cold brew in passing because it's like a topic in and of itself. She wants to know what my method is for making cold brew. So let's start with the basics. What is cold brew? Cold brew is made without ever heating water and makes an excellent replacement for iced coffee. Now, why would you do the cold brew method instead of just making a really strong coffee and pouring it over ice? Well, first and foremost, you avoid potentially having watery iced coffee. If you don't make it strongly enough or don't use espresso, you can end up by pouring your coffee, your hot coffee over ice to cool it. You end up with watery coffee, which doesn't taste as good. The the second reason is because it is lower acid. Because the water temperature is never hot, you're not getting the acid out of the beans. So people who have acid reflux are more likely to respond well to a, a cold brewed coffee than a hot brewed one. That does mean, though, that you're drinking iced coffee instead of hot coffee. So I don't know if that's a deal killer there. Um, you'll also end up extracting a better, more robust flavor than if for the iced coffee, because when you when you make heated coffee and then it cools down, it starts getting more and more bitter as it cools. So the cold brew never gets the bitter and it never becomes quite as bitter um, just in the brewing process at all. And then, of course, the most important reason to do cold brew coffee is that all the cool kids are doing it. I was at Aldi's of all places and I saw cold brewed coffee for $12 for 12 ounces the other day. And I thought maybe I'm in the wrong business. Maybe I should stop roasting and I should start cold brewing because that's an insane amount of money per ounce. But I digress. Um, there is another side effect, however, you should be aware of on cold brew. It extracts more caffeine. So if you are sensitive to caffeine, be careful with the cold brew because you are getting more caffeine there. The water is on the beans for like 12 to 18 hours. So here's how you do it. First, you want to gather all of your supplies. I start with a quart mason jar uh, and a lid for it. Coffee beans, of course, and a grinder. And then you'll you'll need something eventually to strain it with because otherwise you'll end up with grits in your teeth. And then what you do is you grind your beans coarsely, very, very coarsely. If you grind them too finely, you'll end up with weird cloudy coffee, something that if it tastes good, wouldn't bother me, but yeah, just don't do it. And then I like to use a half to three quarter cups of coarsely ground coffee beans to a full mason jar, which is about four cups of water minus the, the bean mount. Um, you pour in cold water and remember this, the water flavors in your water, chlorine or whatever, stay in your coffee. So you might want to run that through the Berkey first or get some distilled or spring water from the store. Don't know. Just depends on how your water tastes. And then you leave that in the jar at room temperature for 12 to 24 hours. I like between 12 and 18. In fact, what I'll do 
is when I'm doing this in the summer, I like to do it the night before. So you grind the coffee up before you go to bed, put it in the jar, leave it on the counter. And by the time I'm up and have bumbled around and remember to do it, I strain it off. And once it is strained, you just put it in the fridge, drink it over ice or however you like to let, you know have it. You can add cream, you can add sugar, whatever you like to do. Uh, don't store it at room temperature for too long if you don't have a fridge because you will eventually grow nasties in there and you don't want mold. So that that's how I make cold brew. Uh, you Another thing you can do, if you have a French press, instead of using a mason jar, you just put it in the French press. And most of them also have about four cups of water that go in there. So it's about, you know, again, half a cup to three quarters cup coarsely ground beans. And then instead of having to strain it, you just push the plunger down and you're good to go. Uh, they do make this really cool thing, though, over at Amazon. And I'll send the link over to you, Jack. And it's a strainer that goes in a wide mouth mason jar. So, you you know, you get the jar, put the strainer in, put the beans in, fill it with water. And then you just pull this thing out and, you know, sort of let the water drip out of it, and you're good to go. That's a really fancy, awesome, special cold brew method. It's made out of stainless steel. But again, if you don't have to buy an extra thing in your kitchen, maybe you don't need that unless you are a cold brew fanatic. Anyway, friends, looks like I have time to do a quick promo. Um, are you looking for the perfect Christmas gift for your relatives? Why not send the best smelling gift they can have under the tree? That's right. We've got gift wrapped coffee packages over at hollerose.com ready to make your holiday gift getting, giving easy. You, you can even include a custom message. And right now I'm handwriting them. Um, I can print them, but it seems nicer to handwrite them. Prices for the gift coffee do include shipping in the U.S. Just go to hollerroast.com and check it out. And thank you, Oxy and Chris, for your questions. I thought it was funny how they dovetailed. And Jack, I really hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It looked online like you were having fun. For the rest of you at TSP, make it a great week. Awesome stuff from Nicole. Awesome sauce. Anyway, next up I have a question on dealing with the harsh reality of you have a dream to build a business, in this case a farm, and you want to homeschool your kids, and is there any conflict there? And I have, I have often said, working from home in of itself, and it's not really anything to do with homeschooling, but working from home is not necessarily a valid child care solution. I, I mean, I'll look at how much effort and time my wife puts into our granddaughter who's you know a year and a half old, and then how much more effort and work goes into it once she gets home with Braylon, who's six, and you got a, a almost you know one and a half year old and a six year old running around. I, I couldn't watch them and do this show, and I have more flexibility than a lot of people. So I understand this question and this concern. Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel. Today's question comes from Josh. Josh asks this question. Am I biting off more than I can chew when it comes to homeschooling and farming? This is what Josh says. This is a painful question to ask, mostly because it puts my hopes and dreams out there to be critiqued by someone other than myself. But this is something I need to hear from experts to see if I'm missing the mark or not. I come to this desire to farm from a background in health nutrition. I was also a firefighter. I learned a lot about how, to, how food is grown and how it can be grown better. Joel Salton was my red pill. 
My wife finished her residency, and we moved to Anderson, South Carolina. I basically dove into permaculture with a heroin addict-like obsession, reading, watching, listening to as much content as I could digest. Dun-dun-dun! Enter Jack Spirko. <laughs> I found out about di- TSP when I was looking for permaculture content. The fact that it had info on ancestral diets, politics, permaculture, I was pretty sure it was divine providence that I found a podcast that checked so many boxes for me. I have to agree with that completely. Some areas I have adopted from Jack's teaching are volunteerism, crypto, homeschooling, entrepreneurship, on and on. My end goal is to have a farm very similar to Mark Shepard's. My oldest boy is turning four next month, and his twin brothers are turning one year old next month as well. I want to homeschool them at the same time I establish the farm. So Josh's question is, is he biting off more than he can chew? And I want to say this. First, and I'm sure I speak for all the expert council members, that we take this privilege very seriously. And this is a very profound question. Josh, you're brave to share your hopes and dreams looking for feedback. And you're asking the right questions. Seeking truth is part of learning and getting options and opportunities. You still get to choose your own path and dive in with passion like you've already done. We'll leave the farm portion of the question for Dobby Simpson or Jack. For the rest of you in TSP land, be in agreement. Don't run out and buy 25 acres and tell your spouse you're homeschooling. We live in a new culture. You all choose for yourself and agree on who stays home. Now let's get into the nuts and bolts. <clears throat> and as we said before, check with HL- HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Connect with them online and check out your state's options. So as an example, so South Carolina, where Josh is, South Carolina government schools are from 5 to 21 years old. Yep, 21 years old. New high schools for 19 to 21-year-olds who haven't finished high school yet. 5 to 17-year-olds for homeschool families. So Josh, when your son turns 5, you must join a homeschool association with at least 50 people and complete 180 days of school. What does that look like? Check with HSLDA and local homeschool associations. Shop around and find the group that matches your family style. When we think about the history of learning, until recently it was primarily the job of the parent, and we believe with the increase in technology, that responsibility is going to return to the parents. So during pilgrim times, all kids wore dresses, easier to make and to go pee, and then sometime around eight years old, when a boy was ready to go off to work with his dad in the field or hunting, he would get a pair of breeches, which is the term we get for breached. And this was a sign to everyone in the community that this kid was ready to be helpful. So the education was really the family's responsibility. The earliest homeschool guru of the 1970s, Raymond and Dorothy Moore, felt eight years old was the right time to begin formal schooling for the part for part of the day. At one time, they were fighting for Arizona to have compulsory education starting at the age of eight. Many people, like Matt Powers' Unschooling with Permaculture Facebook page, ask questions there. You can go there. You can ask questions and um, see how other people are doing this and what they're doing, like they're raising a family and they're working some kind of permaculture or homestead life. You're going to want agreement on the style of homeschooling you do also. From unschooling 
to, to classical school, remember, you don't have to stick with that style forever. For example, we use a mastery approach with our math and writing, but much of the rest of the, we springboard off of classical curriculum in a mo- more unschool, hands-on way. It's something fun to talk about together with your spouse. Be sure you're the non-hands-on parent that if you're being a good listener. So you're going to start with the interests of your kids around what you're working on on the farm. So, for example, we had friend a friend, Eric, and he was the homeschooling parent for a couple of years while his wife was working, and he was a fit- fitness coach. And so his three boys did a lot of math that was around fitness and anatomy and physiology, and the boys were adopted from Russia, so they did a study on Russia. And then you just relax and play it by ear, depending on the requirements of your state. If there's no state testing in a subject, then you can allow your kids to read at 4 or at 10. And, you know, just enjoy whatever that activity is that they love. And then with just a little bit of daily work on those basic subjects, um, nobody gets stressed out and you get done what you intend to do outside. Your child won't know everything other kids know, but everyone has gaps, so don't let that bother you. When another child tells your kid they know something particular that they learned at school, which they've been convinced everyone with their born-on-date learns at the exact same moment, and can't believe your kid doesn't know the exact same thing. So then you teach your kid to respond with something like, oh, well, we went to the beach and watched turtles hatch. So the exciting thing you did is your kids come back. I think we've said this before, but learn the big words. If you've forgotten them, or maybe like me, you never remembered them past that test. Everything in life is biology, chemistry, physics, and I learned the basic words and definitions in some cool elementary textbooks that made it really easy for me to apply to our daily activities. And they're great websites, so don't worry about what you don't know. While talking to a neighbor who's considering homeschooling, I was amazed at how inadequate they felt to homeschool. The dad has traveled all over the world and can fix anything. Now, the important thing is to keep small children safe. You can set up play spaces around the property with shovels, Tonka trucks, and the like to keep them occupied. Sticks are also a favorite, and you'll have plenty of uh, for fort building and play. A few lessons about tying a knot, and you extend the play for hours. Plan on doing the hard things that aren't safe or you need to concentrate on while your wife is home early in the morning before she goes to work. You might also be able to exchange work with a neighbor or hire a homeschool kid that lives nearby. So your quality food idea aligns really well with quality education. You're not teaching your kids how to protest, complain, or whine about the earth going to hell. You're teaching them how to reclaim the peace that you're responsible for. Allow your educational resources to align with your lifestyle. Those tiny shovels, rakes, and hoes allow your little people to be really helpful to the best of their ability. And as they grow, they continue to grow that ability. If you can get past the paradigm that learning is something, learning is something professionals do, you can do this. The professional growers can grow more food than one family or one farm. But what's the quality of that food? The same applies to government education. A quick list of some of my favorite things for smaller children are um, an online resource called Carrots Are Orange. It's a Montessori printable website with lots of gardening-type fun activities. Um, Farmer Phil by Phil Williams is a great children's story specifically about a permaculture farm. 
Eric Olson is another permaculturist who has created a beautiful series of coloring books that teach the principles of permaculture. And if you're an adult who likes to color, these are great for you, too. And then my favorite children's author is Eric Carl in the gardening area. He's really awesome. His stories are beautiful with bright colors, and he has a lot of his story is surrounded by hard work. So there's um, one about a baker and then a gardener, and it's just really cool stuff. Um, one of the fun things, uh, Paul Wheaton has a deck of permaculture cards, and if you're like me and get really bored while you're teaching your kids to play games like Go Fish or Crazy Eights, the, um, the younger kids like this deck, and it's great for me because I can just kind of relax and let them take their time while I read the hilarious content on the cards like the lady who likes to garden naked and all that kind of stuff. It's really fun. And then our favorite board game right now is called Wildcraft. And it's a cooperative game where you learn about medicinal herbs and their uses. There's just so much fun permaculture-style stuff out there right now. Josh, we can't speak about the farming side, but I would tell you, Go all in. Four-year-olds don't need you to plan their entire future. They need you to see who they are today, listen to what they're telling you today, and the future becomes clear as you do that every day. When I was transitioning from primary school to high school, I had the opportunity to visit a local vocational high school, and the woodworking class was incredibly appealing to me, but I was told I was too smart for that and I was going to college. Then in college, I wasn't liking the accounting and business aspects of school, and I asked my college counselor about forestry. You already know what the counselor's job was at the business college I was at, and that was to keep me at that school. They didn't offer forestry, so 38 years later, I'm still basically doing the accounting and system stuff. I've made a good living and have lots of opportunity to build things, including the house that we live in. Josh, I would just encourage you to follow your dream. Ask questions. You're asking really good questions. Get advice, which you're asking here, but design the life you'd love to live because you're the one who's going to be living it. For the Expert Council, this has been Michael and Sue Lepreze with HaloBysue.com. So in some ways, the problem is the solution. We, we take all of that time that we would spend trying to entertain and, 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 uh, and, and are these children, and we put them into project mode so that they're doing their learning and not necessarily requiring us at every minute. Uh, seems viable. And then we take the farm and we turn it into a learning tool. Seems like a decently proposed solution. I still think this is something. I am one of the biggest advocates of homeschooling you will ever find. I really am. I'm also beginning to believe by doing some observation that in some ways it may be better for us to use the state apparatus for a couple of years and transition kids into homeschool, uh, assuming they want to. And what I mean by that is there is a couple things that the school does well. They do teach children by force, I have to say, but by force – Enough discipline to this is your work, do your work. But I'm also beginning to have my loathing for the public education system increase to a level that is, is, is nearly like, you know, where acid will shoot out of my eyes and burn the stomach of anybody that's an administrator in the education system today. Notice I said administrator, not educator. My grandson has this thing called a Bob Report, whatever the, that is. And I had to censor myself there because this is. 
And basically, they get it signed whenever they do anything wrong. And for instance, the other day, uh, he laughed because he was told to write a story. And as he was writing a story, um, one of the things he put in his story he thought was funny. So he giggled as he wrote it, and they signed his bob and sent him home to be in trouble with his parents. Um, and, and things like that. Now, he also got you know his bob signed, again, whatever the hell that is, uh, because... He got up while the teacher wasn't there, walked across the room, turned the lights on and off. I find that being something that would require some small level of discipline, and yeah, you can't be doing that. Uh, but but I'm even beginning to think that like, that plan is bad. Like you just be if you can do it, just better off homeschooling out of the gate. But but I do think it gets easier as they get a little older and more self sufficient. Um, I, I think it's much easier to homeschool a kid that's nine than to homeschool one that's five. And I know people are doing it all the time, you know, and they have kids that are further along at five than, than most of the kids in school are at like seven in totality. Because I, I totally agree with Mike and Sue, this concept of like, well, they don't know this one thing, that one thing, and this one thing. And, and I could take like the average adult who's functional and smart and has a good job and go back into their grade school and find a hundred things that the, the state just said they have to know these things, and most of them wouldn't know freaking 75%. I'm sorry, wouldn't know 25% of them. They'd get, you'd get like a 25%. They'd miss 75% of the answers on them. And the reason is a lot of this shit ain't as important as they tell you it is. What's important in, in education is, a, is a, the ability to have a total understanding of things to see interrelationships, to see patterns, to see logic, to see order and disorder and understand the difference between the two, to be able to read and to write. If you can read and write and have a basic understanding of mathematics, a little bit of history so you have some context on the world, some global knowledge from a standpoint of like geography, so that you understand realms and peoples and cultures and things like that, you can then learn any effing thing you want. And this concept that only like professionals can teach is just stupid. If you need a four-year degree to teach second grade, then we're teaching second grade wrong. And let me tell you something. We're teaching second grade wrong, and all the other ones too. Just my thoughts. Uh, next up, I have a question on sheep for Darby Simpson. Darby, take it away. Hello again, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Calling in again to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Eric up in Michigan. Eric has found himself in a unique situation in that uh, he's got a distant family friend that is uh, downsizing their farm and is willing to give him a mating pair of sheep uh, before winter. Uh, and he's kind of wondering if this is going to be worth his while. Eric mentions that he absolutely loves lamb and loves the idea of raising a couple of lamb per year on his farm uh, in order to, to eat, uh, provide for he and his family. And he does a, you know, a few other uh, things on his homestead there, but this isn't going to be for profit. And Eric's uh, you know, main question was if one pair of sheep is going to be worth you know, uh, the benefit uh, given how much work it's going to be to take care of them. Uh, and he's kind of wanting to know, is it worthwhile, you know, to keep that one uh, ram around just to, to take care of, of one you? 
And this is something I run into a lot, uh, particularly when somebody is, is homesteading uh, and they're trying to raise meat, uh, you know, for their uh, their family or whatever. Uh, and, you know, in, in Eric's situation, I, I told him, uh, you know, basically the same thing I would I would tell anybody else that, uh, you know, here on my farm, uh, I wouldn't keep a bull around uh, all year long if I only had one cow to breed. Uh, and in fact, even though we have about eight or ten cows that we're breeding right now, and we'll be doubling that next year, I'm still not going to go out and buy a bull uh, because I have to feed him and take care of him all year long when I really only need him around for about 60 days uh, to do his job. The other 10 months out of the year, I've got to keep him separated from the rest of the herd. I've got to feed him, water him, give him mineral check in on him, make sure he's got plenty of grass. If he doesn't, I've got to get a bale of hay out for him. It's a lot of effort. Now, uh, certainly at my scale, I could justify having a bull, but what I have found is that it's it's much easier and actually less expensive for me to go and rent a bull uh, to be brought to my farm for about two months, and then once he is done with his job and, and hanging out with the ladies, I can adios him and send him back to his owner, and I don't have to worry about taking care of him over the uh, next 10 months out of the year. Uh, the other advantage to renting a bull, or in this case, renting a lamb, is that it gives me the opportunity to change up my genetics and uh, change things up if I, if I don't like what I'm seeing or if I think there's room for improvement. So I, I think in any situation where you've just got, you know, a couple of animals that it might be hard to justify having that ram around uh, for more than the amount of time that you need to, uh, you know, cover the, the ewe that you've got there on your farm. Now, certainly if you've got a few ewes and you, you don't mind the extra work, then it wouldn't be too big of a deal to, to keep him around. I guess the big thing, Eric, I would have to tell you to consider is, you know, how easily can you uh, go out and find a ram if you keep this this one U or if you get a couple of U's, uh, how easily can you go find a ram to bring in once per year to uh, get your U's bred so that you'll, you know, have a continuous uh, production of, of lamb on your farm there in Michigan. Uh, that's something that only you can sort out and figure out. You just have to do a little bit of research. But, you know, my answer is it's probably going to be more effort than it's worth to keep this, this single ram around. Now, if you're getting this guy for free uh, and it's about time for the U to be bred, you could go ahead and take him, bring him in, let him do his job, and then make a decision about what you want to do. Uh, moving forward, I think you need to have that conversation with the uh, the family friend that's giving you this ram to make sure that it's okay uh, if you keep him for a while and then sell him off or give him away or send him on down the line, whatever it is, just to make certain that you maintain the relationship there. But uh, I think from a, a work and cost standpoint, in my opinion, no, it does not make sense. Um, the the only the only other caveat I'll, I'll I'll add here is that you know from a um, sustainability and preparedness standpoint, it makes sense to keep the ram around. Uh, that I understand. If you if you just like doing it, it makes sense. If it if it brings you happiness and joy and fits within your personal context, it makes sense. But from a dollars and cents standpoint, it's probably not going to make sense for you. And as always, that's that's how I come up most of these questions is from a dollar and and cents standpoint and in a workload uh, versus re return on your effort standpoint. Uh, so those are my thoughts, Eric. Hopefully you find this helpful, and uh, good luck moving forward with your, your small lamb flock. You never know. 
uh, in time, you, you may want to turn that into a farm setting operation where you're certainly keeping some meat for yourself, but you're, you're selling off the surplus uh, and, you know, getting a nice little side hustle, a nice little side business off of your farm there. That's always something to think about. Uh, and, you know, if you had a few ewes running around, it'd be pretty easy to justify keeping that ram, particularly if uh, you don't have, uh, you know, any purchase price wrapped up in him and he can do you a service and make you some money. So always something to think about. Uh, thanks for sending in the question there, Eric. Uh, uh, want to say to anybody else, if you got questions, keep them coming. I enjoy answering these for all of you guys. Uh, if you like learning the, the things that I discuss on the Survival Podcast, I would encourage you to check out the hour-long uh, weekly podcast that I do with my good friend Diego Footer that is called Grass-Fed Life, and you can find that in iTunes or uh, on your Android device, or you can also find it out at the website at permaculturevoices.com. Uh, we spend an hour every week talking about things just like this and how to make money raising beef, poultry, pork, eggs, uh, chickens, turkeys, you name it. We cover it. We talk about marketing. Uh, we, we talk about, uh, you know, practical farm advice and how to, how to run a profitable business on pasture. So please check that out. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review uh, on iTunes. As always, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Everyone have a great weekend and take care. So good stuff there uh, from Darby Simpson. I, you know, I couldn't help myself when he, uh, when he said rentable, and I was listening to it. The first thing I did is I pulled my browser up, and I went to rentable.com, and I was almost afraid that maybe I'd find some kind of weird uh, uh, porn or something. It, it was a Spanish website, and I can't read all of it because my Spanish is good but not that good, but it, it actually looks like it's for renting bulls uh, for this purpose, I guess. Um, but then the, this this thought crept, crept, uh, crept into my mind. I'm like, I wonder if Stephen Harris is going to own rentable1234.com by the end of the day. Uh, anyway, next up we have a question for Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, on making buying decisions about a, a Volkswagen TDI. I myself drove a Jetta TDI, a 2006.5 Jetta diesel TDI, if you remember those days. For the first 18 months of the show, I actually, it was my personal mobile studio. I'm a big fan of TDIs. I'm a big fan of diesels. But here's my over, like somebody said, sum up diesel as, as a technology on vehicles in two sentences. I would say they're better than everything else and they cost more than everything else. It's like it's like it's like a, almost like a diesel penalty, right? But it, it's worth paying it because there's just so much damn better. They do everything better, but they always cost more to fix, maintain, buy, etc. Of course, they also have better resale values. I'm sure Charles will talk to us about that. But I'll tell you how it feels sometimes. This is not true, but it's how it feels. It almost feels like you go down to the tire shop. And you're like, yeah, I need four tires for my car. And uh, they go, what do you got? Like, I got a, uh, a Jetta, but here's the tire size I want. I know what I want. Just like, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be uh, installed all around. It's going to be uh, $425. Oh, okay. And the guy goes out and goes, oh, wait a minute. You have a TDI. I got to charge you the diesel penalty. That's going to be 500 bucks. It's not that bad. <laughs> But sometimes it feels that way. You know, you take a vehicle in to get worked on somewhere, and they're like, well, our master diesel tech's not here. Like, I, I'm not having you do engine work. Well, but it's a diesel. 
okay, Skippy, when did they hire you? And you have to explain that, like, it doesn't matter this is diesel because I'm asking you to, like, rotate the tires and check the brakes, not to do, you know, timing work on the, uh, on the fuel pump or something like that. Anyway, uh, with that in mind, Charles, take it away, man. Let's talk about making a decision on a Volkswagen TDI. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. You may be wondering where I have been for the last few months. Well, I've been hanging out at the top of the Pikers list, desperately trying to get off that list. I've actually been traveling so much the last four months, in fact, way more than a mechanic should ever travel, I feel like. But now I'm back home for a while, and I can finally get back to taking your car-related questions. This one is from AJ, and it's about buying a TDI Volkswagen. I'm beginning my search for a vehicle probably used, though it doesn't have to be. Volkswagen's TDI engine has my attention, as I've long loved diesels in their simplicity and durability. I'm looking at the Jetta, but might consider moving up to the Passat or down to the Golf. I'd appreciate your perspective on how VW's TDI engines hold up, what are the major repairs, and any signs that signal a disaster before I even take it for a mechanic's okay. My question is primarily about the TDI engine, though any other VW unique issues are also welcome. If it matters, I'm currently living in Montana, so whatever vehicle I choose will see its fair share of cold and snow, and I'm not concerned about last year's fuss. So AJ, great question. Um, depending on when and what generation we're looking at, we're probably looking at one of the last three generations, and I'm going to be using the terms Gen 1, Gen 2, and Gen 3 to talk about these. When I'm talking about Generation 1, this is going to be 09 to 2014 Golf Beetle Jetta and Sportwagon. Generation 2 is going to be 12 to 14 Passat. Generation 3 is only model year 15 because that's when, well, the shit hit the fan for Volkswagen, and I think most of you guys know uh, the nonsense that went on with that. As of right now, it's actually really kind of hard to say what the future holds for these engines. You know, had had none of these been updated and had their emissions controls taken care of, we could talk about the Gen 1s having fuel system issues, having injector issues, having issues with the intercooler freezing. So if you're looking at a Gen 1 engine, remember Jetta, Golf, Beetle, Sportwagon, you're going to want to look and make sure that the charge cooler has been replaced with the cold weather kit. Even here in North Carolina in the wintertime, we see these charge coolers completely freezing up and causing the car not to start. And it's interesting because the car get towed in, we'll push it into the shop, you let it sit for a couple hours, it'll fire right up. Typically, the only problem is the car will not start. We can install a new kit, a new charge cooler, and it, it's a different design that helps prevent that, and the car's trouble-free. I've seen one instance where that did actually cause engine damage, but I've probably seen about 50 of these charge coolers fail, and only one have damage. So for the most part, that's about all you have to worry about in that space. Overall, these engines do hold up pretty well. You know, we'll see our fair share of fuel system issues on the Gen 1. That was really early on, and we haven't seen much of that lately. Even in the past, I would say two years, as long as all the maintenance gets done and the car's not abused. There are a couple of other issues like DPF failures, uh, exhaust flap failures, and a couple of other little things. But those are actually getting taken care of as part of the modification that's going on right now. So you shouldn't have that issue on the Gen 1. When we move to Gen 2, the biggest, most problematic thing is going to be the AdBlue heater and the urea injection system. The heaters fail pretty common, and it causes a check engine light. It can actually cause the vehicle not to start or not to run right 
if left unfixed. There was a warranty extension on a lot of those, but it had to be a specific failure of that heater. So depending on how it fails will depend on whether or not it's covered under that warranty extension. When we move into Gen 3, there's a lot of unknown. I've seen a handful of problems Everything from injectors leaking and actually pumping diesel fuel into the oil to AdBlue injectors leaking and the lines leaking. That was probably the most common one where the urea injector line was leaking under the hood. So those are going to be the biggest issues with each generation of the TDI engine itself. Of course, the car bolted around it can have its fair share of problems. Light bulbs, CV boots, transmission issues potentially with the DSG with the mech unit failing or the clutch pack failing inside the transmission. The transmission issues aren't huge right now. That was kind of a mid to late 2000s thing going on. But with all that said, what I kind of wonder, and it's a, both a concern and not a concern at all, is what is these updates and these modifications going to do to the behavior of these cars long term? On the Gen 1, where they're replacing exhaust components, is this software modification going to wear them faster, make them last longer? We don't know. On Gen 2, is the same kind of thing. Gen 3 is kind of in this weird position where there was a modification of software that was done this year. And then next year, in, in approximately 12 months after their first modification, they're going to get another modification. And they're going to get exhaust components replaced. And what that's exactly going to look like, they haven't really said. So there's a lot of unknown going on right now. Here's the good thing that makes me feel good about that. They are giving crazy warranties along with all this modification. I don't want to throw out the specific numbers because I can't remember exactly what they are off the top of my head, and I really don't want to get that wrong. If you venture down that path, the best advice I would have is call your local dealership or call VW of America and get the word-for-word -word verbatim information from them directly so that I don't screw it up and tell you the wrong thing. And you buy a car based on what I said, and I was wrong. When you're just looking over a car, of course you want to look at brakes, tires, belts, hoses, damage. Any kind of body damage can throw up a red flag. Run something like a Carfax. No, it's not 100% guaranteed, but it'll give you an indicator of at least where the car's been in its life. If all of that passes and everything looks good, then yes, please take it to a mechanic. Not just anybody, though, and really even question on who you're taking it to that may specialize in VW Audi, if you take it to a VW Audi performance shop, let's say, or an independent shop, they might not be super familiar with TDIs. So you're going to want to find a place that has a technician that knows the TDIs and knows them very, very well. This honestly is another great time for the dealership. When I was at the dealership, the majority of the cars that we worked on, at least it felt like anyway, I don't think the numbers actually worked out that way, were diesels. And the diesel customers were our best customers. So finding a used diesel... You're probably going to pay a premium for it, but it's usually going to be a better maintained car. So I hope that helps at least give you a little bit of direction to go on and a couple of major things to look at. None of those failures are really catastrophic. It's just things to look out for and to be aware of with that car. Absolutely take it to a technician before you buy it. I'd also recommend learning how to do some of the basic repairs yourself. A lot of things like air filters, pollen filters, even fuel filters on the diesels are very easy and don't require really any special tools at all. There's some debate on the fuel filter side, but no, you don't have to have a scan tool to replace that fuel filter. Guys, when it comes to choosing between different models, get the car that fits your needs first and then worry about some of the problems that it had. If you buy a 15 Golf and that doesn't fit your needs, you're going to hate it even if it's perfect. If you buy a 13 Passat 
and it has an issue or two here and there, but it fits your lifestyle, you're going to be much more happy with it. All right, guys, keep the questions coming. You will find me desperately clawing my way off the Pikers list uh, here over the next few months. So keep the questions coming. Jack, TSP, have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again soon. Well, good stuff there, and uh, it's time for my segment of the day. Anyway, this question comes from Ron. And given we talked about gardening this week, I thought it'd be a good question for the end of the week. And a little bit different than everything. We didn't really have anything like that today other than the composting question for Jeff. So that's why I selected this one. Anyway, Ron says, what herbs should be planted, should I be planting in my annual garden to improve the garden itself? A while ago, you were doing an interview with Kat Ellis, the herbalist, and you said, quote, if you aren't putting herbs in your annual garden for what it will do for your garden, you are wrong. What did you mean by that? What herbs do I need to plant for the garden? Thanks, Ron. Um, so here's here's my deal. Let's let's start off with well, what do herbs do for our garden? And they do a variety of things, but one of the big things that they do is they attract pollinators. Many herbs flower. They flower a lot of them flower throughout the year. Or if you have many different herbs. They flower out a lot of different times, so there's always something blooming. That brings in pollinators. Those pollinators, of course, end up on the tomato buds, and they end up you know, on the, on the squash blossoms and things like that, and they improve our overall pollination, so that's one of the things they do. They attract predator insects. Some of this is due to the fact that they provide pollen. So there are a lot of wasps that are actually predatory wasps that will come into things like basil and oregano and mint flower and things like that. So they have a lot of value in that they're able to, to provide for that, uh, that aspect of predators, but also herbs by providing this edgy, bushy, um, highly scented you know, environment tend to provide very good predator habitat. So if you think about the typical annual garden where everything's in a row, everything's straight, and that's not necessarily bad. But you have your tomatoes, you know, two feet apart. You have your peppers a foot and a half apart. And you have all this bare open space. And maybe you're at least switched on enough to put mulch in there. But it's kind of barren. It's not very natural. So not only do the predators not have a good place to hang out, they don't have good ambush points. So by including herbs in there, we have places for those predators to retreat to when they want to rest. We have less of a, a signature on those uh, predators for the pest insect to kind of hone in on. And then herbs also tend to make certain pest insects stay away because of the smells that they have. So by providing these different smells, especially certain things like um, calendula or marigold, uh, both calendula, which is pot marigold, and true marigold, tagastes, uh, have some repellent characteristics for certain pests. Most alliums, which is your garlics and things like that, your chives, will also have some repellent aspects in regard to different pests. So there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that herbs do. They also fill in places that are otherwise empty, which does a lot for us from a standpoint. If we have really tough, hardy herbs, let's say something like oregano, sage, and things like that, and you've got to be careful now. So like sage, I mentioned sage in many places is a perennial herb. 
it will get bigger and bigger and larger and larger. So you have to think about where maybe we put mint. Don't put that in your garden. Though someday somebody's going to send me a picture of a beautiful garden bed completely matted in mint with tomatoes growing out of it or something like that. It's going to be awesome. But uh, when, when we, we have these, um, these, these, these very hardy, especially Mediterranean herbs, they can handle the harsh sun. So that oregano just sitting there, and it's just being smacked with that sun, and it's like, okay. Because you, you've, you, you haven't put me out in the harsh conditions that I, I'm used to. You've put me in this beautiful, awesome garden soil. And by the way, oregano in many climates is going to be perennial as well, but a little bit easier to manage. And uh, so it's sitting there. It's like, whatever, basil. Now it's a nice annual herb. It's going to sit there. You're smacking me with sun. I'm basil. I don't care, bitch. Smack away. Well, what are they doing? They're shading the soil. Even if you've mulched, now they're shading the mulch. So now how much, you know, for the little bit of water they use, because they're low-water drawing plants, uh, they, they preserve a tremendous amount. So they do all of these things. And then when we uh, reach end of season, we have more root mass in the ground. And all our annual herbs or uh, perennial herbs that are not perennial in our climate, all that root stays in the ground. We don't pull it out. We leave it down there. We feed microorganisms with it. And all of the stuff that we don't harvest for use, we can mulch to the ground, and that's more biomass. We start to see they do all these wonderful things. And then some of them actually are fertility aids because some of them will do what's called dynamic accumulation. What that means is they're better at getting certain micronutrients out of the soil and even some macronutrients out of the soil than other plants. An example of this, like one of the best examples, would be comfrey. Comfrey is really good at getting potassium, and all plants need lots of potassium. I should say all plants need significant amounts of potassium. Lots is not a good word. Um, and so when we take comfrey, and we can make comfrey tea with it and make a soil amendment, it's using green manure right back, but we can just basically cut comfrey leaves and drop them as a mulch, and we'll help provide nutrients to our soil. And then comfrey back to predator habitat. Supposedly, I, I haven't been able to verify this, but I've read from several different sources it's one of the best plants for spiders to overwinter in that there is. And of course, it's one of your best general predators. So there's an example of a plant that provides flowers, It provides predator habitat, it provides ground cover, it provides fertility. So which herbs should you be planting? All of them. All of them. And, and so I know that's like a ridiculous answer, but it's also a true answer. But so then here's how you have to look at that. Ask yourself what the herb does. Is it annual or perennial? Uh, if, it's, if it's a perennial, does it become a problem if it's in a garden? Rosemary would become a problem. It turns into a daggone tree. right? So rosemary might be something you plant near your garden, but in its own little place. Oregano can become perennial, generally not a problem, though. Mint will run everywhere and probably become a problem. So if we're going to do mint in a garden, we're probably going to do something like sink a plant, a, 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 a pot into the ground, and we're going to keep it a couple inches or more above soil line where the rim comes up, so and it will still try to get out. So you may not even want to do that. You may want to get a good hard stone plant, uh, stone pot, and put it in there and just not even bury that pot in the ground and keep an eye out for it escaping. Uh, but it would be a great plant to have in there. Uh, if we're going to do something like chives, so just throw chive seeds everywhere. They, they really won't hurt anything. And if you get too many of them, just pull them out and eat them. If you look at something like sage, again, sage can become a big bush. So maybe we have like a corner of the garden that's outside the general garden where we landscape a little area and we plant our sage bush. And then we have our, our, our you know, maybe our... our um, 
our rosemary on the other side. So then we've got it kind of flanked. We can do four corners with perennial herbs. And then get all those easy-to-control perennials and annual herbs that you can think of that you want and just plant them at various places in there. If they become too space-hungry, cut them back or pull them out and use them. And start asking yourself, what herbs do I want in my life culinarily? You know, I mean, they're obvious ones. Parsley, basil, oregano, dill. I mean, thyme. I mean, right there, you can, you can cook your ass off with just those. A little sage, a little rosemary on the flank corners. Like I said, now you've got a great, um, you've got a great culinary base. And there's a lot of other good culinary herbs. Those are just like right off the top of my head. But then we might look at like some other herbs that are useful medicinally that also have all these other benefits. St. John's wort, great herb. Just, just an absolute fantastic herb from a medicinal standpoint and from many other standpoints as well. Herbs I would continue, uh, include chevril, uh, chamomile, savory. I mean, those are just absolutely fantastic herbs as well for many different reasons. Borage is related to comfrey, but it's an annual. I think for most people anyway, it's going to be an annual. It's a fantastic herb, great flowers. And those flowers are actually really great in like salads and things like that off of uh, borage. Some perennials that I think really you can make some space in the garden against sage. You can probably control it, and if it becomes a problem, yank it out and start over. Uh, echinacea. Even if you don't ever use echinacea as a uh, medicinal at all, it's just a fantastic, hardy flower. brings in a lot of predator insects. Uh, I think I said thyme already, but thyme is a perennial, so you do have to think a little bit about it. Lavender is another perennial. Uh, that really makes a lot of sense in your garden, does so many awesome things, and it's also culinary. What I'd honestly do, you know, get get into, like, the MSB, if you're a member, and look up the seed companies that we have, Terroir Seeds, uh, Victory Seed Company, High Mowing, and uh, Any Seed, and, and check out their sites and just, like, pull up, or just go to any site that's a good site for buying seed, pull up their list of herbs and start going through them. And, you know, read about three or four herbs a day and decide, is this something that I want in my garden? Learn, learn about its habitat. Is it perennial or annual? And is it is it perennial or annual for you? And, you know, start incorporating that and maybe, you know, come up with a dozen to try out and see how they do. And then next season, do some more. Um, but, the, but, I mean, the answer is almost all, it, the answer is all of them. But it's also all of them, and then out of all of them, you choose the ones that you want that do the things that you're looking for that fit into the system that you have. But it, it is just fantastic what herbs can do for your health, for your family, for your property, for your garden, for your life. So I definitely encourage you to learn more about them. On that note, guys, if you uh, want to support this show, one of the really great ways you can do that is by joining the Member Support Brigade, and you'll get great discounts. I, I, I saved it for this time because I was going to talk about herbs and seeds and all. I wanted to point something out. Today in my email box, I got an email from one of the biggest seed providers in the country, awesome company to do business with, NE Seed, right? So NE Seed sent me an email. Guess what? You can get 15% off all of our seeds. And you know what? If you are an MSB member, do you know how much you get off of all their seeds all the time? 20%. So right now they're running this huge end-of-year sale, and they're promoting the hell out of it. But if you're an MSB member and you're starting to pick out your seeds for the spring or winter garden or whatever you're doing right now, you can get a 20% discount. But if you their, their sales rank for three days, if you decide you want to order that stuff next week, you can still get the discount with the MSB. 
So when I say the MSB puts money back in your pocket if you use the discounts, I mean it. That's just one example. So consider becoming a member today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. Now, the other way that you can help us is by going to tspaz.com when you're going to do your online shopping. And boy, is this the time of the year for online shopping. All you got to do, tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, Before you shop, go there, take a look at our reviews, click the link, get on over to Amazon.com. You can buy anything from there. Whenever you go to tspaz.com, before you shop online, you help the Survival Podcast. Today I brought back a product I've brought around a few times because I think it's one of the best values out there, and I think it's a great Christmas gift when you want to spread preparedness, and I think anybody would like to have it. It's the E-Tech City 4-pack of LED lanterns. These are little bitty lanterns when they're closed up. They're bigger around, but they're about the height of an iPhone 6. Right, I mean, they're just they're just very small and compact. And the way you turn them on is you just pull them open, and they have LEDs all around them. They're very bright. They come with batteries, and you can get four of them for twenty four ninety nine, so about six dollars and chains a piece. And I've got a whole write up on them. Um, if you think about it that way, like you could get somebody a set of them, but you could get a box of these and if you have like a bunch of people you need to do like a little thing for if you wanted to put together like a little bit of preparedness kit you could give each one of them one of those and a flashlight and something else and still keep it under twenty dollars a person pretty easily maybe a few other things I don't know I mean I'm still working on the the the, uh, the blackout kit show I'm gonna do an awesome blackout kit show for you guys sooner or later I promise you uh, but I promise you these will be in it are they the best lanterns ever made no You know, can you take them up on the roof and throw them off the roof two stories and let them land on concrete and they'll keep working? No. But come on, for six bucks a piece? These are a great deal. I have a bunch of them, and I've given a bunch of them away. When my son and his, his wife got their house, I gave them uh, eight of them. I gave them two boxes of them. And I, I explained, you know, here's the batteries. Do not put the ba do not store them with the batteries in them. Put the batteries next to them. That way, the batteries won't leak in them when they sit there for a long time unused. This is how they work. This is how you put. This is how you put the batteries in. This is how you turn them on. How you hang them up. Make sure you have some here, here, and here. And that way, if the power goes off in the house, no matter where you are, there's one that's not that far away. And I also gave them a couple flashlights. So you hang one of these on every door. Put one. Put one in your your main drawer. Put one in, you know next to the bed. Put one next to the kids' bed. That type of thing. And you'll never have this problem of Daddy, I can't see you. That kind of thing going on. So check them out. Great gift. Great product. If you ain't got them for yourself yet, you probably want to do that too. And as always, you can help support us by doing what your online shopping where. Tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and tis the season for shopping. So uh, kind of try to remember us while you're doing the shopping you're going to do anyway. It helps, and it doesn't hurt y'all a bit. It doesn't even take you anything more than about an extra one second of your time to go there first. And, again, all new Tspaz. I have all of our reviews broken down by product category, so you can check through all the stuff we've done. We've done well over 200 reviews for you in the past two years. High-quality products, and remember, everything on tspaz.com, I've spent my own money on. If I would not spend my money on it, I would not ask you to spend your money on it. My, uh, my brand is trust, and uh, I never violate it. That brings us to our song of the day and uh, our, our roundout of our tribute to Ozzy Osbourne, as I've said through the month or the week, probably one of the mis most misunderstood musical artists of all time. Ozzy Osbourne's music is some of the most positive Uh, life-affirming messages that probably anybody 
out there has. And, and I wouldn't say that any individual one song is in of itself that positive and life-affirming, but I would say that like when you look at the totality of somebody's work and how much music that they've made is like that, Ozzy's at the top of the list. Maybe not number one, but he's up at the top of the list. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that because of the kind of uh, the dark marketing. And, and I, I've saved this to the end of the week so I can tell you this. I want to tell you where the name Black Sabbath came from. The, the band was actually called something else. I can't remember what it was. But it was something, it wasn't anything like that at all. And he and his, his bandmates were, were cruising around in London, and they came across Aleister Crowley's uh, movie at the time, was in the, the theater, called Black Sabbath. And it was this horror movie. And they were amazed that people paid to be afraid. So they grabbed onto the name because they didn't want to be have this name that actually was a name some other band had and be confused. And they, they, they built a marketing campaign around it. But that's, that's all that it ever was. And, of course, Ozzy had a lot of problems with drugs and alcohol, so much so that Black Sabbath eventually dismissed him. So that's why I say him being fired. He had a great solo career, worked again with Black Sabbath. I think they're on tour right now together, the Black Sabbath reunion tour. Um, but in the interim, Ozzy had a lot of great music. Uh, some very recently, as far as people that are old like me would consider very recently, and some quite a long time ago. This is a more recent one. It was on the album Scream, and it's called Life Won't Wait. I, I want to just, uh, you know, as I've been doing, kind of read some of the lyrics to you and then let you hear the song, because a lot of times I think when people hear Ozzy Osbourne, they tune out and they don't hear the lyrics, but if I tell you them first, then when they're sung, you actually pay attention to them. So here's Life Won't Wait. I watch it all change. Take the news of the day and throw it away. Read that again. Who might have told you that a few times? I watch it all change. Take the news of the day and throw it away. Time will kill all the pain. Faith will cure the decay. All of this blind ambition, the greed brings us together. Stay strong. Stay true. Be brave. It all comes down to you. Boy, that, that, that one little phrase there, be brave, God, that's what I'm trying to tell America. I have people come to me freaking out about shit all the time. Don't, don't scare so easily. Don't be so easily frightened. Don't be so easily led to believe that you can't accomplish something. Anyway, back to the music. Tried to let it go. Know that justice moves slow, but it comes in the end. Rise, the guilty will fall. Stay, they can't take it all. They want the unimportant, it's love they leave behind. Stand up, stay true, be hard, the future looks to you. Every second you throw away, Every minute of every day, don't get caught in a mirror because life won't wait for you. No, life won't wait for you, my friend. That sounds a little jack-like, doesn't it? I'm watching the change. 
though who will carry the flame? It all feels very strange. Dreams then mean can be good. Faith to live as we should. And know we're all connected. We give ourselves the power. Stay strong. Stay true. Be brave. It all comes down to you. Every day that you wait, you're falling faster. No sleight of hand, no twist of fate, no ever after. When it's gone, it's gone. A fight to the bitter end. Life won't wait for you. No, life won't wait for you, my friend. In other words, be careful how you spend your dash. You got a weekend coming up. You got a lot of opportunity. Take that opportunity to do something awesome with your family. Do something awesome for your life. Do something awesome for your future. Because if you don't, life won't wait for you, my friend. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. 